Welcome to the Heart Bros Podcast. I'm your host, Violet Luca. This is our super patriotic 4th of July episode. We'll start off with, wait, wait, this just came across my desk. A new Gallup poll shows that only 39% of U.S. adults said that they are extremely proud to be an American. How could that be? That's almost a record low. Well, maybe this story about a vet will change those minds. In the July issue, Jackson Lears recalls how his experience serving on a nuclear-armed ship during the Vietnam War, which was always either in the Gulf of Tonkin or off the California coast. His ship was commanded by men who believed they were technologically savvy enough to win a nuclear war and outgame the Russians fallacy that Lears argues has abruptly lurched back into military and bureaucratic consensus. I spoke with Lears about how contemporary politics has become hyper-focused on individual personalities, the religiosity that underlines the idea of serving your country, and how he successfully became a conscientious objector. I was at high school when 9-11 mm-hmm. happened, and just seeing how that security mm-hmm. state was gradually built over, you know, the course of, but and and with the intention that people would be nervous, but not too nervous as to not do their jobs, right? So people weren't paralyzed right. in fear, but people were frightened. And I and whenever I read about, um, you know, think about the age in which you know you were learning about what the fallout would be in your town and uh, that the that the the survivors would envy the dead i'm really struck by the way in which george w bush's administration really took from mm-hmm. eisenhower's that's playbook. interesting and true they did their best to bring it down to the local level to bring the terror down to the local level and every small town in the south of the midwest that had an ammo dump within 50 miles was certain that that was going to be targeted by terrorists, I know. There was just as everybody knew there was a reason because military installations are so widespread in the US as not to mention the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody had some reason to suspect well the Russians are surely going to target uh, you know this uh, this navy base that's 50 miles away from me or this air force base that's in the uh, you know, it's it's within the concentric circles that the magazines are printing of the of the spread of fallout. And of course, I grew up in a thirty miles from Washington D.C. Uh, and in Annapolis, Maryland, where the Naval Academy was, which of course had no military value, but but uh, uh, it was easy to fantasize that it did. You know, the uh, yeah, the Soviets were surely going to want to take out the Naval Academy first thing. <laughs> Uh, of course. And, and of course, Washington yeah. it went without saying. So uh, once the really big bombs started being uh, manufactured and, and uh, circulated and talked about, uh, thirty miles was nothing, you know. Uh, so exactly, um, yeah. So yeah, there was a real similarity to to uh, to nine eleven, I think, uh, and and certainly to the government's uh, use of it as a as an excuse for expanding the national security state and and terrifying people into supporting that expansion. So exactly, yeah. But you know, you've you've observed that earlier this year, the pol- the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists moved its doomsday clock to ninety seconds from midnight the closest it has ever been. To put this into perspective, do you know what the clock was initially set at? 
when it was created in the 40s? I actually do. When they when they created it, they, the uh, the the magazine and the, and the scientists said it at, at seven minutes in the late 40s. I'm not sure the exact date, but I know that was the that was, the initial setting was seven minutes. So and then did it did it move up in the 1960s? Because the guy has the bombs. The closest that came in in subsequent decades until now. <clears throat> was uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. It was two minutes, and now it's even closer. Absolutely. I mean, do you think it's alarmist at all for the clock to be set this this close to midnight now, as opposed to decades past? I do not actually think it's alarmist, and there are a couple of reasons for that. One is is that uh, the bulletin uh, of the atomic scientists has begun to include ecological threats or the threat of environmental apocalypse, in, in particular global warming, but not exclusively that, uh, which I think is important because we, in our discussions of environmental catastrophe, we tend to focus almost entirely on uh, on global warming and the need to uh, transfer energy production to uh, non-fossil fuels to end fossil fuel uh, pollution and so on. But it's not, uh, that's not the end of the story. I mean, there's the poisoning of the oceans and the reduction of the number of uh, fish habitats and other wildlife habitats that sustain human life and just a whole range of environmental catastrophes in the making. And the bulletin brings those into the picture too. They're not just talking about nuclear war. But with respect to nuclear war, the danger is greater as well, I think. And the reason is this. The U.S. and the Soviet Union, no matter how strained the relations were throughout the Cold War, they always maintained diplomatic ties. And they always recognized that they had a common interest in avoiding uh, the calamity of full-scale nuclear war. Both Khrushchev and Kennedy were terrified by how close, how close they'd come to the brink uh, in 1962. And they were in touch diplomatically uh, throughout that crisis. And there had, the U.S. had been in touch diplomatically, even in the worst days of the Cold War uh, in the earlier 1950s, even during the McCarthy period. Now, uh, the Biden administration and, and uh, the U.S. government generally seems to have uh, given up on diplomacy. Their idea of diplomacy is basically to say what their demands are and then to see to what extent they're rivals or opponents will accede to those demands but there's no recognition that you know we might be able to disagree with some other rival let's say russia for example profoundly about all kinds of domestic policies and other foreign policies and still uh have a common interest in avoiding nuclear cataclysm and uh that's not uh in the picture right now we're not doing diplomacy anymore why do you think that diplomacy is off the table. Why has that fallen to the wayside, again, when the stakes are so high? That's a bit of a mystery to me, actually. I, I really feel like the manufacture of the Russiagate conspiracy theory, that is the theory that Putin had something, as people used to say, mm. on Trump, and that, that he was therefore able to blackmail him uh, into uh, covert support for Russia, and that indeed uh, Putin had played a role in colluding with the Trump campaign to get Trump elected. It's as if uh, the supporters of Hillary Clinton uh, and the Democratic Party establishment simply could not accept 
the notion that they had uh, that their candidate uh, had actually lost the election, even though she had uh, won the popular vote. She right. Had genuinely lost the election, uh, and it did not require Russian interference to make that happen. But we had a steady drumbeat of really f- five years or more of uh, emphasis on on. Uh, uh, Russian wrongdoing and on the evils of Putin generally, uh, all the journalists that he, that he had killed or had a, uh, been imagined to kill, uh, uh, all of the opponents that he had supposedly tried to poison, all the stories that uh, that were circulated about Putin. So there was a kind of personal demonization there yeah. of, of this man. Uh, and I'm not pretending uh, for a minute to... Uh, to make excuses for Putin's behavior or to say he's a nice guy right. or anything like that. Right. Uh, but I do think he's a rational actor in charge of another major uh, world power. Uh, and he's trying to look out for that world power's interests, uh, which sometimes may collide with what the U.S. thinks are its interests. But uh, that was the case in the Cold War, too. And as I say, we were able uh, to conduct diplomacy during the Cold War, even as we recognize the profound differences between our systems. Uh, I think the personalization uh, and demonization of Putin into a, a real monstrous figure has played a role here. Uh, and it's an outgrowth of the 1990s uh, unipolar moment when the, uh, Madeleine Albright and, and uh, the Clinton administration generally uh, it pretty much announced that, well, we were on top of the world now and we were going to stay there. It was going to be the U.S. in charge of, of, of pretty much everything. Uh, and uh, with that uh, frame of mind, uh, we went forward into the 21st century and then 9-11 happened. And uh, so the sense of threat was exacerbated and the global war on terror began. Uh, and when that began to run out of gas, uh, we needed a new figure, and it was a convenient one uh, to demonize and distance ourselves from. So I feel like it's the personalization uh, of politics in a way that didn't exist, as I say, even during the Cold War. Uh, I don't think even Stalin was demonized in this country the way Putin has been. And there was a lot more reason to demonize Stalin if you're just going to count the corpses yeah. uh, that he created. So uh, that's I don't know. That's the only reason I can explain. I don't think there's any justification for it, uh, but I think the people who call for it uh, are dismissed as either using Russian talking points uh, or as weaklings who aren't willing to show the toughness necessary to be uh, a great world power. In fact, the number one uh, world power. So this is a, a real problem. Diplomacy, it seems to me, does not proceed from weakness. It proceeds from strength and a confidence in one's own ability uh, to chart uh, an appropriate course through the, <laughs> the eddies and shoals and difficulties of, of uh, geopolitics because it, they're often very risky businesses that have to be managed. Yeah, absolutely. And um I mean, it, it's also the way in which unions have been really, their power has been diminished. And the answer to that is, you know, through legal means. And really the answer to that would be negotiate better, right? It's to, 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 have, to come from a position of strength and be like, oh, okay, well, this is, let's talk about it. But what, why do you think the average citizen is less afraid of nuclear apocalypse now 
than in the past. I mean, is it is it the media coverage? Is it this personalization of politics where we're it's just a bunch of characters and some sort of weird like Game of Thrones fight happening? Right. Well, that's an interesting comparison. <laughs> I watched enough of Game of Thrones to, to see the, the resemblance. Contemporary media personalization of politics surely plays a role here. I think that there is a kind of baseline problem with secrecy uh, and that as long as our nuclear programs are as secret as they are um, and so much is being done out of public sight, it's very hard for the public even to know uh, how much danger we're in. Of course, there was secrecy back uh, in the early 1960s as well and people were much more aware then. There was a whole popular culture of apocalypse with films like um, On the Beach or uh, novels like Alas, Babylon, I remember was the name of one of them. I devoured this stuff as a, as a, uh, uh, as a teenager. I was, in, I was in high school at the time. Uh, so there, there was a great deal of public awareness. And uh, I do think media... I don't want to pretend there was a golden age of, of uh, uh, media independence no. <laughs> uh, and, and the pursuit of honest evidence and so, so on. Nevertheless, I think there, there was a little more distance between uh, media and government than there is now. And this, again, is partly in, re in reaction against Trump, but not, not entirely. Uh, and that uh, the media have become even more than they were in the past stenographers for the national security state. Yeah. And the national security state itself has penetrated media in the form of professional wise men uh, like Brennan and Comey and the other former CIA uh, and FBI figures who have become uh, commentators on uh, MSNBC and CNN mm -hmm. and other uh, cable news networks, professional truth tellers, when in fact they were in the business of manufacturing disinformation. They're the original uh, creators of disinformation yeah. from the top down. And, uh, and yet they're being held up as figures of, of public trust, uh, again, partly because they are uh, they are willing to uh, to denounce Trump and Putin and everything they supposedly stand for. The whole notion that Trump and Putin were a team and that they were uh, somehow cozying up to one another is belied by uh, Trump's own record of uh, sanctions and other hostile gestures toward uh, Russia throughout his presidency. But uh, that doesn't seem to have uh, soaked into the public consciousness uh, the way the, the, the fantasy of, of collusion uh, Trump's collusion with Russia has. So I think there has been a failure of, of media to tell the story uh, of, you can find the story, you can find evidence for uh, the story of increased flights, for example, by nuclear capable bombers, US bombers uh, in Eastern Europe and, and very near the Russian border. Uh, and, uh, and the accelerated development of uh, tactical nuclear weapons uh, that are uh, faster than ever. And, and of course, the Russians are doing this too. So there is, once again, a reactivated arms race. And we get announcements, for example, going back to the, uh, to the Obama presidency when he announced with great fanfare a modernization of the nuclear arsenal. But it was all done in, at the level of abstraction. Nobody was talking about what this actually meant uh, in terms of 
the kinds of weaponry that were going to be developed. Trump reiterated this uh, commitment to the modernization of the nuclear arsenal and accelerated it. Uh, Biden is continuing it. Uh, but no one wants to talk about the human or moral dimensions of this problem. Problem. They want. They want only to report on the abstract notions themselves, or occasionally uh, specific weapon systems, but very rarely even them. Uh, when all of this stuff was being much more openly discussed, I think back in the '60s, and so this I, I, I repeat is no no uh, idealization of the '60s. Uh, because there were plenty of things wrong with with journalism then, but uh, and one of them was a cozying up to power, as it always is. Uh, but there was genuinely more uh, interest in curiosity about and public awareness of the danger of nuclear war in the 1960s. And of course, Kennedy himself uh, encouraged it, uh, that awareness, uh, and even helped start in a, in a public address in the in the very early part of his administration. This is Jack Kennedy I'm talking about, of course. Uh, uh, he started the fallout shelter craze, so uh, which maybe never really got that far off the ground. But uh, I do remember uh, a kid in my class, one of the smart kids, you know, a smart girl uh, named Patricia Waters, who. Uh, all of us had to sell, it was a Catholic school, so all of us had to sell candy, you know, because you're always selling selling something to support the parish, you know. Uh, you, you may be familiar with that scene, but in any case, uh, she was selling all of these box after box of chocolates. And, and finally, uh, the nun who was our teacher said, you know, where, where are you selling all these? Well, and, and uh, Patricia, and she said, oh, well, we're putting them in our fallout shelter. Uh, so these were people who were going to live on chocolate. You know, and it was really good chocolate at that, but still, you know, at some point they were going to run out of chocolate and they were going to have to come up uh, for air. And the, uh, and the air was going to be poisoned and uh, the ground and the water were going to be poisoned too. So these are... Uh, uh, these are key facets of, of nuclear war that simply, uh, they, w- without downplaying the horrors of conventional warfare, one has to admit there is a long-term poison. I can say I can come up with no better word than poisoning for what for what nuclear war potentially does to our world, uh, and and that is uh, something that people were very much aware of in the early 1960s and. It was partly because nuclear testing was done above ground and uh, strontium-90 was discovered in the mill. Housewives, as the saying went back then, were worried about strontium-90 in the milk. So suddenly Kennedy and other politicians began to have to pay attention uh, to public worries about fallout. And it wasn't that so much, but the Cuban Missile Crisis that pushed Kennedy toward his great American university speech uh, in 1963, where he warned against the nuclear sword of Damocles hanging over our heads, and he announced the uh, the test ban treaty and made genuine and sustained overtures toward peace with the with uh, with the Soviet Union and a backing away from the nuclear arms race. And within a few months after that, of course, he was assassinated. Why do you think it's so easy to slip into the fallacy that war 
specifically modern war, can be contained or executed according to some detailed strategy. I'm thinking of you know, like drone warfare, no boots on the ground, all these weird euphemisms. Well, I think you put your finger on it there with the example you gave. I think technological uh, sophistication has always appealed to uh, the mainstream American imagination and the military imagination and the belief that the U.S. has a you know, technological superiority uh, over uh, every other country in the world, which is uh, probably f- false and certainly yeah. riddled, riddled with the uh, uh, with problematic assumptions, but there is that uh, tradition of thinking that way, that uh, technology alone is is a kind of uh, uh, magic bullet that will allow our distancing uh, from uh, the imprecision and the unpredictability uh, and the pervasiveness of caprice and mistake in warfare and it's not just technology there is this ideology of managerial expertise that goes along with it that is where uh, the faith in um, highly theorized uh, technocratic rationality or various technocratic versions of rationality like game theory and others comes from and the use of game theory theory uh, in in the early 1960s was uh, widespread and common for calculating just exactly how the U.S. could go through 47 steps, as Herman Kahn calculated at the time, uh, toward toward nuclear war and then back off at the last minute. All of these things have happened in, in recent times, have developed the uh, the technocratic rationality, the, tech, the, the faith in technological superiority, the belief in surgical strikes, the absolute precision we used to hear about during the Vietnam War, for example, uh, that, of course, uh, civilians would not be injured because these weapons are so precisely targeted. They're not going to hit anybody. They're not going to hurt anybody except the uniformed uh soldiers on the other side and their, uh, their installations. Uh, there's no question that there was inflated, you know, that people in the civil war or earlier wars, even the Mexican American war and the, you know, the 1840s even went to war with inflated confidence and hubris about their ability to, to lick the inferior opponent and so on. But I think a lot has happened since then to intensify the fantasy that one can control outcomes, uh, and that's the last thing. That war, war is the is the most uh, unpredictable, uh, the least controllable enterprise that human beings are capable of. I think, and yet it's the one to to which we, you know, we pay the most uh, technological homage. Absolutely. I mean, I want to I want to ask you about your time in the Navy, where you had firsthand experience working with some very erratic men who had the power to deploy nuclear weapons. At that time in your life, were you often consciously afraid of nuclear apocalypse? Like, what what did your vision of that look like since you were so close to it? Well, I mean, ever since I was a kid in uh, elementary school, uh, I had uh, very specific visions of nuclear apocalypse that were based uh, not just on on pop culture, although that was important too, 
but on documentary footage of Japanese survivors of the uh, the attacks on uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And uh, there were documentary TV series. Air Power was the name of one of them. 20th Century was another, the one that gave uh, Walter Cronkite his start. Um, and and uh, And my brother and I would watch these on our big black and white TV. And there were pretty pretty horrifying images of uh, what this one comparatively small uh, atomic bomb had done to this middle-sized Japanese city, uh, Hiroshima. So that's where they came from originally. And then the popular culture uh, that I was referring to earlier uh, that represented an imaginary but quite possible Holocaust uh, fed those uh, imaginings. And uh, so I think the way I thought about nuclear war and what was so horrifying about it to me was was not just being uh, evaporated in, in milliseconds, which after all, when it was over, it was over. You yeah. know? But the, the long-term uh, prospects, again, what happens when you emerge from your uh, from your storm drain or your fallout shelter out into the world again with the possibility of long-term uh, injury and uh, disfigurement uh, and, and slow death from this invisible enemy, this radiation sickness that no one could see or measure or talk about even, uh, but nobody could do anything about it either. Yeah. Uh, so it, it was that kind of no exit feeling. It was a war from which there was no exit. Um, I mean, it's it's not like Yossarian at the end of uh, Catch-22, uh, which Hel- uh, Joseph Heller ends by saying, then he took off, uh, which is like the classic 60s move. You know, there's a reason that that, that novel was a, which a center, centerpiece of, of 60s counterculture. But you couldn't just take off. You couldn't run away uh, from this kind of an attack. And nowadays, uh, I mean, you know, like everyone else, I compartmentalize these kinds of thoughts to go about my daily life. And yet there is something about the idiotic hubris of American foreign policy, the inability or unwillingness to contemplate the consequences of our confrontational actions that is profoundly depressing. And it reinforces, again, that sense that ultimately there's no way out unless and until we we find out... uh, find our way back uh, to uh, diplomacy. And I, I, what, what's troubling to me, and I alluded to this in my article in Harper's, is that our nuclear policy is still wedded, uh, as it was in the early 60s, uh, to the possibility of first use. Yes. Uh, and we, we have to move away from this potential threat of a first strike and and it's not even if it's not even uh, in in uh, retaliation for something against ourselves for a non nuclear attack against the U.S. Even one of our allies could uh, could be attacked with conventional weapons, and that could be serve according to our current policy as an excuse to use nuclear weapons. So there are ways to back away from this uh, this policy of confrontation without unconditional surrender without unilateral disarmament. Those are red herrings. Uh, They're often raised when anyone starts talking about stopping or at least slowing the arms race. There, uh, and Daniel Ellsberg pointed this out uh, in his, in his great book on, on uh, the doomsday machine said, look, 
we can we can dismantle the doomsday machine and still keep enough of a nuclear arsenal to constitute a deterrent against any future attack. We could do that because, as, as Churchill said, why make the rubble bounce? We're in an age of overkill. We don't need all these nuclear weapons. We don't need to be able to destroy the earth three times over or bring on a nuclear winter uh, or to threaten to do that in order to deter attack uh, against ourselves or against even our allies. We could start reducing our nuclear stockpile right now and keep doing it for days on weeks on end, uh, and we would still not come anywhere near losing our deterrent potential. So this is this is where we are. It's and that's that I find depressing. Yeah, and I mean in the in your piece you use the phrase algorithmic rationality. Um, yes. And for the men you worked with, you know this algorithmic rationality made it possible to put their own fears aside. Although they themselves weren't exactly in control, they believed in some illusion of control. Was this just that hubris? Or, or what do you think was going on there psychologically? Well, one of the things about algorithmic rationality is that it relieves human beings of any sense of responsibility for making decisions or, or bad choices, the dreaded human error. It, it provides the illusion of objective certainty. But these guys that I worked with were not necessarily working uh, like the nuclear strategists were with algorithms, but they were still participating in the same mindset. And what they did do, and I think this is true of civilians in nuclear strategy as well, but certainly it's, it's true of the military uh, officers and, and enlisted men that I knew, uh, who knew they were on a nuclear armed ship, but successfully distanced themselves, or they seemed to, uh, from the actual consequences of their work. And I can't claim to know what was going on in their heart of hearts, but they seemed to be able to distance themselves from the actual consequences of, of what they were doing. And the focus, the way they did that, uh, and it's a classic technocratic move, uh, is to focus on focus on techniques. Uh, rather than results, to focus on process rather than goals, to, to focus on how weapons worked uh, rather than what they would actually do to their targets. Uh, and the question that was posed to me, my, my department head, which he said the chaplain was going to ask me if I were being considered, as I was being considered for this uh, highly classified, uh, top secret um, clearance required uh, position on the sealed authenticator seal, uh, sealed authenticator system team uh, that would launch uh, our nuclear weapons uh, by decoding the message that was sent to do that. The question that had to be asked to me was, did I have an axe to grind for or against nuclear war? And I was astonished when I heard that question at the at the flagrancy of it, uh, of, of the assumption that one could be an absolutely neutral technician and not have any strong feelings one way or the other about nuclear war. I, I find that quite astonishing. And apparently there were people who could answer that question. No, I do not have an axe to grind. Well, you know, that's when I decided I did have one to grind. So it, it was... Uh, but but I do think there there are the the human mind is very very fertile and creative when it comes to distancing itself 
from the consequences of, of what it chooses to do, especially if those consequences might well be horrific uh, and even apocalyptic. Yeah, there's there's a great de- degree of compartmentalization going on. But then you also write that two of your shipmates, quote, discussed the smell of burning human flesh with bemused equanimity. And is this as simple as the banality of evil or did, what, what was going on there? I, I think the banality of evil is a, is a brilliant concept. And I think Hannah Arendt was really onto something when she, when she uh, came up with it uh, to characterize uh, the running of the, uh, how the Holocaust operated and how uh, the Nazi functionaries convinced themselves, much as I was just describing uh, my shipmates and fellow officers, uh, not to think about what they were actually doing, but just to uh, perform procedures uh, to be in, involved in, in uh, certain techniques uh, and, and not, you know, make, making, uh, making the trains run on time, making the showers come on when they had to and so on. Uh, but I think it goes beyond that. Uh, when you're actually talking about uh, men and now increasingly women in a, in a wartime situation and, uh, Few of these people, uh, I, I knew a lot of different kinds of people in the Navy. There was a full range uh, of human types, and very few of them, I would say, were genu- genuinely cruel people, uh, even though there is a place in the military. There almost always a, is, a, is a place for thugs and bullies somewhere. Yeah, uh, unfortunately, but, yes. Uh, yeah, but... but uh, I think beyond this this focus on technique, uh, and, and this may be especially true for the enlisted men, uh, they more commonly used humor and irony, which function the same way as techno speak. I mean, it distanced them from nuclear horror, but also from the counterinsurgency crimes uh, of, of the Vietnam War. So it's nuclear war before drones, anyway, is sort of the ultimate distance button pushing form of war where you never see uh, the people that you're killing. But counterinsurgency is the opposite uh, extreme. When you're, you're murdering, them, murdering people, uh, civilians, many of them, up close and personal in broad daylight, uh, and it's you or them. And this is the kind of thing that is unavoidable if you get involved in a counterinsurgency war uh, as we did in in Vietnam or Afghanistan, for that matter, and in in those cases too, the uh, the role of race uh, helped white American soldiers anyway uh, to distance themselves somewhat uh, from what they were doing. Uh, but I but I think uh, black humor uh, is is always present in in war and calling people who had been burned alive crispy critters is a way of taking on the, the horror and, and just rendering it too trivial uh, to, to be of any, any consequence, you know, to, co- uh, to compare it to, a, a, you know, what is one of the sharpest pains that human beings can feel burning uh, to, to a breakfast cereal. So again, there, there is a protect, these, this is a protective device. Some, some of these guys seemed like sweet young men to me off Kansas farms or something. I mean, there were, there were all kinds of people like that in, 
in the Navy. And we would sit up all night when I was on watch with them and tell stories. And uh, I think there were a lot of fundamentally decent people. But as you know, the compartmentalization uh, process is, is well known to operate in, in the minds of people who have jobs uh, that involve potentially killing great numbers of other people whom uh, they may or may not ever see. You know, they can be good family men. They can be good church-going believers. They can give uh, generously to uh, charity and, and so on. Uh, and yet they have a job to do. And that that kind of uh, language uh, tends to legitimate the job. You know, it's just uh, uh, a necessary thing. It's a dirty, dirty work, but somebody's got to do it. I don't look back and, and with with revulsion at those kids because that's what they were, like me. But I was at the time horrified internally to think this is this is what happens. This is what can happen to. To me as well, you know, if if, uh, if if I'm placed in this kind of circumstance, this is this is what I have to do. There are various idioms that people resort to to live with that. One of them is technical, but the other is certainly uh, ironic and, and humorous. Yeah, you did what everyone who's alive right now would like to say that they would do, it, which is became a conscientious objector. Um, and I'd love to know more about your experience trying to achieve that status because it's it's so curious that you know being an atheist was a hurdle i mean do you know why that might have been the case like this is just the this is just something to make things trickier for lefties or what well i would i would never discount the the uh, the latter explanation the one you just gave but I think I'm a cultural historian and I've written about U.S. cultural history for for 40 years and I've been immersed in it long enough to know that this is a a deeply religious country and, and, and it has always been really since Puritan times and certainly in, uh, the 19th and 20th centuries and on into the 21st, it's been imbued. The U.S. has been imbued with this civil religion of patriotic duty that is implicitly Christian and more often uh, Protestant Christian, but generally Christian in a non-denominational sense. But it's a civil religion, so it also demands fealty to the state so that uh, patriotism and religiosity uh, tend to converge often. And, and certainly during the Cold War, they did. That certainly brought Catholics into the fold because they were battling against godless atheistic communism, just as the fervent Protestants were. So the only way out could recognize an alternative to uh, joining up and, and uh, serving your country in the standard military way was by seeing traditional pacifist religions like Quakers and Brethren and Jehovah's Witnesses uh, in fact, it's because of Jehovah's Witnesses in, in uh, bringing a case before the Supreme Court in 1943 that uh, conscience uh had a way opened up for them, I think. Refusing to serve on religious grounds could be justified, at least from the military point of view, only if you were a member of one of these traditional organizations. But things had softened up enough uh, theologically by 1970 when I was applying uh, that they only demanded a, a, a belief in the supreme being, you know, a kind of late transcendentalism. And I was, I was comfortable with that. But it's not a denominational or, or formally organized religious uh, belief. 
they still didn't allow atheists, but uh, there's there was a huge secular pacifist tradition, of course, uh, and a very strong one. And uh, it survived and, and flourished on into the Vietnam War. And a case came before the Supreme Court while my application was under consideration that actually vindicated the right of an atheist to be uh, to avoid military service based on his or, you know, well, in, in that case, it would have been his for anybody opposition to war in all its forms. So that happened in the spring of of, uh, uh, of 1970. I, I mentioned in this article that you know, as I, I, I actually brought it to the attention of my executive officer, and he said, "The Supreme Court, they don't have anything to do with us." So, <laughs> so that was a bit revelatory. It's it's scary to think what the what the current Supreme Court might say about conscience objection, or for that matter, what the contemporary military might do with it. It's not an issue today like it was then, but, uh, and I haven't looked into the status of contemporary conscientious objectors, but, uh, uh, but yeah, atheists uh, had had, had to scuffle and scrap their way to uh, legitimacy there, but they made it by by 1970, uh, at least temporarily. Right. I mean, I did. Did you see or experience anything firsthand that really heightened or cemented your belief in in that modern war, because it always necessarily involves people who aren't fighting, uh, is never just? Well, I was fortunate enough not to be in country in Vietnam in combat. I saw enough media representations and I heard enough personal accounts. Uh, of that war and what was going on there to know uh, that counterinsurgency warfare, uh, which was the other most likely form of war, uh, along with long-range nuclear attack, uh, counterinsurgency warfare included civilians uh, every bit as much as, as nuclear war. Um, but it, it, did, it, it did not involve uh, wit- witnessing uh, an atrocity firsthand, but just paying attention to uh, what was being reported, and one can one can say the same thing about you know more recent wars in the in the so-called war on terror, and and certainly the uh, the capacity of drones uh, to make mistakes. You know, focusing on a a, a, you know, a a wedding scene where people are shooting off rifles in Afghanistan. Uh, uh, yeah, and that that's one of the reasons that Julian Assange is. Uh, uh, in prison right now uh, for ex- exposing for the crime of exposing U.S. war crimes in in uh, Afghanistan, uh, but every aspect of the the so-called war on terror uh, um, involves some version of counterinsurgency somewhere, and whether by design or accident was going to kill uh, civilians. But I also was reading a lot about. Uh, modern war and how it differed uh, from previous wars in the sense that it involved the whole population. And I don't want to make too strong a distinction between modern and, and pre-modern war. I mean, something like the Civil War, which is you know, the American Civil War is often called the first modern war. There were lots of civilians, 50,000 50, civilian deaths in the, in, the, uh, in, in the Civil War. And there was a lot of uh, scorched earth uh, policy conducted uh, by the Union Army through the uh, 
uh, Confederate states and so on, but nothing like the uh, uh, the kinds of civilian casualties that took place, in, particularly in the, the Second World War and the, and the wars that have succeeded it. And I was reading, uh, while I was in the Navy, I was reading Norman Mailer's Naked and the Dead. I was reading Joseph Heller's Catch-22. I was reading Paul, F later, not while I was in the Navy, but later I read Paul Fussell uh, on his own experience, uh, as well as his observations about World War II. It was just an unending stream of, of futility and brutality and stupidity. And to finish the thought, mendacity, uh, even of the good war, you know, the, the Second World War, mm -hmm. which I think could uh, could be justified in, in many ways. And that was always the war that, you know, would be brought to my attention as a conscientious objector. What would you have done? Would you have fought against Hitler? And I can only say, well, we, you know, I, I would confront that historical reality, reality if it ever presented itself to me. But I do know that the situation I'm in now uh, would require me to kill civilians, and that I don't want to do. So that's uh, where I was coming from, and that's, uh, you know, it was, for, fortunately for me, and, and again, this was part of my class privilege, I wasn't uh, drafted and, and sent off to fight in the infantry in, Viet in Vietnam. I was much more removed uh, from firsthand experience of combat. Uh, but at the same time, I was I was exposed to uh, potential catastrophic long-range combat, and uh, and that of course uh, concentrated my mind. The irony, of course, is you know Daniel yes. Ellsberg just passed away, and Julian Assange is about to be extradited to the U.S. like any any day now. And of course, uh, one of the people don't remember this about Ellsberg, but when he I think it was ninety. He tried to get prosecuted under the Espionage Act to challenge its right. constitutionality. Like even till up until those very last years, he was very committed to, right. you know, doing that work. What do you anticipate is going to happen to Assange? And is there hope for you know reality winner? These other whistleblowers that have made this very brave stance in the face of, you know. Uh, uh, you know, our, our modern wars, which are, you know, tactical right, and right. very clean and nobody gets hurt. Yeah, well, I, I, th I think that the Espionage Act is a scandal, its very existence. And I admire Ellsberg hugely for all kinds of reasons. But one of them is his, I think, correct and precise focus on the Espionage Act, which has been used and I, I won't say abused because the act is bad in itself. But in Assange's case, he's not even a U.S. citizen. And U.S. citizens are specifically excluded right. from the Espionage Act. So there's a, the, the case should be thrown out of court without any question up front. You know, it just doesn't work. And it, it's a travesty of, of legal procedure. And, and what the Brits did uh, to Assange uh, was, was pretty much at the instructions of, of – uh, uh, U.S. representatives, and uh, so it it will be interesting to see how uh, and and disturbing to see how far the U.S. government can take this uh, case because 
it's so flawed in so many ways. But in, but even if you accept the constitutionality of the Espionage Act, which I don't, it doesn't apply to U.S. citizens. I mean, to non-U.S. citizens, excuse me. It doesn't apply to foreigners. Uh, and uh, unless perhaps special cases where if some foreign spy was working in the U.S., uh, he he might be culpable under the Espionage Act, but that does not apply to Assange. He he simply is is not uh, chargeable under that act. So and yet the judge in the uh, Judge Barrett, sir, I believe her name was in the in the, in the UK, uh, was basically slavishly following uh, U.S. instructions. And so I would love to see more journalists get up in arms about this. I think the protest against it has been too little uh, and too late against the uh, travesty mm-hmm. of, of Assange's treatment. But, uh, but we shall see what, what happens. Uh, things have, have changed dramatically and not in a good way since uh, the early 70s when, uh, of course, Ellsberg was, uh, uh, was, was ultimately... Uh, released on a technicality, uh, and the and the uh, uh, bec- because of the misconduct of the prosecutors in uh, breaking into his psychiatrist's office and then you know uh, violating all sorts of legal procedures in in uh, in their in their attempt to bring him to to so-called justice, but he knew he could well have gone to jail for forty years, and uh, fortunately. Uh, the uh, the judge who was in, who who was overseeing the case saw the illegal procedures and and threw out the case accordingly. But uh, I'm not sure that's going to happen this time. <laughs> and, uh, it's a it's a different yeah. it's a different world and a different atmosphere. And uh, unfortunately, I think it's a creation of a bipartisan consensus. It's not something we can just blame Republicans for or the right wing or Trump. Uh, it's a bipartisan consensus of Democrats and Republicans, mainstream, and uh, it's it's committed to an embattled world, uh, a world of hostile uh, blocks opposed, blocks of nations, power blocks opposed to each other, and uh, that is not a world that is going to address climate change as a problem anytime soon, for example. We don't Mm -mm. get the kind of international cooperation we desperately need uh, if we're constantly going out and picking fights with other countries and confronting them aggressively. And that seems to be the MO uh, of the bipartisan consensus. And uh, the Democrats are leading the charge, but the Republicans are very much on board too, especially with respect to China. Uh, So... We shall yeah. see, but yeah. it's it, as I say, it's discouraging. And of course, losing Ellsberg was a huge loss. He was a, he was a great man, and uh, I admire him hugely. And I think the arguments that he made in the in the Doomsday Machine uh, are cogent, and they're based on decades of his own experience and observation and study, and they still bear repeating. So uh, I intend to keep repeating them whenever I have a chance. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. This was such a pleasure to speak with you Well, it was my pleasure as well. Thank you, Violet. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. 
Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org slash save 